Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. We're in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Let's pray. Father, you are infinitely glorious. And we are finite and we can't even begin to comprehend what it will be like to be in your presence. But we know, because of the gospel, that one day we will. And we will begin to comprehend on that day. And it will take an eternity for us to even scratch the surface because of who you are. God, we thank you that it's possible because of your son, Jesus Christ. Through his life and death and resurrection, we long to look at his face, Father. We long to worship him. Would you help us as we look at your word, which focuses upon this. Help our hearts to be at rest and help us to to trust in your word and to rejoice over your word this morning. For your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Barbara Walters of television's show 2020, which most of you know, did a story on gender roles in Afghanistan a few years ago before the uh, conflict in Afghanistan. And she noted that women customarily back then walked five paces behind their husbands. And she returned not, you know, many years later, and she noticed that women still walked behind their husbands, but they walked even further behind their husbands. And she couldn't figure this out. You know, with the overthrow of the, the Taliban and everything and women having freedom and rights and no longer being viewed as property, she couldn't figure out why they still walked behind their husbands. She wanted to know. You've been set free. You know, there's no more oppression. You're free to walk around in Rome. You can walk next to your husband. You could hold his hand. You could put your arm around him. Why are you walking even further behind your husband now? You're free. So she asked the woman, she said, Why do you now seem happy with an old custom that you once tried so desperately to change? And the woman looked Miss Walters straight in the eyes and without hesitation said, Landmines. See, the moral of the story is no matter what language you speak and where you go, behind every man there's a smart woman. (laughs) The call of discipleship is that we follow Jesus, that we walk behind him. And in that following of Jesus and in that walking behind him, we are called also to follow other mature believers and other mature disciples. We are called to imitate them. If we don't keep our eyes on Jesus and follow him, and if we don't keep our eyes on godly, mature Christians that are in our lives, then we will inevitably be be distracted by the world and everything that it offers us and the glittery and shiny things that it offers us. And we'll lose sight of our calling as disciples to follow after Jesus. The big idea that we're going to see today is this. Behold and become a gospel-centered disciple who longs to behold and become like Jesus. 
Here's what I mean. This passage will call us to behold and to identify and to stare at and focus our lives upon godly, gospel-centered disciples, mature believers, and to become like them. And as we become like them, because they're gospel-centered, we will long, we will have a passion to behold Jesus Christ one day and to become like him. When we behold gospel-centered disciples, we'll become like them. And when, we be, and when we become gospel-centered disciples, then we will begin to long to behold Jesus and to become like him. And on that final day, we will become like him. Look at verse 17. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you, ha- you have in us. Now, this note of imitation, he's saying, imitate me, is nothing new here. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul talked about the, uh, the role of Jesus, how Jesus was the model who gave up his rights. And Paul called upon the Philippian church to imitate Jesus. And then he highlighted the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus and himself. And he said, these are people who are following Jesus. And so he's saying, follow us as we follow Jesus. And so he returned to that theme here of imitation. So there are examples. Examples in your life of people that you need to follow be precisely because they're following Jesus. In other writings of his, Paul mentions imitating him and imitating other Christian believers. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Thessalonians 3. But it, it may seem odd to us. We may think that it reeks of pride here. Who are you, Paul? Who are you to say, imitate me? You know, we, I would argue that Paul's not on an ego trip here when he says that. First, Paul has already stated, we saw it last week, that that Paul is not perfect. He says, not that I've already obtained perfection in the resurrection of dead. So he he knows he's not perfect. He says, I'm not a perfect disciple calling you to follow a perfect disciple. He knows that. He knows that only Jesus is perfect. But Paul is saying, my life is a model that you can follow. It's not any more arrogant for Paul to say this than for a music teacher to teach uh, a student their instrument or a coach to to teach uh, the, the player how to play or a teacher to teach a student. The idea here for Paul is that he has achieved a certain amount of spiritual maturity and there are others with him. And he's saying, look upon those people, keep following them, focus upon them and look at their lives and imitate them. Now, Paul's not a league of his own here. He says it here. Keep your eyes on them, those who are walking according to the example you have in us. Paul's saying, you can look at me and you can look at my life and you can look at these other people and imitate them. Become like them. Keep your eyes on them. Behold them and you will become like them. He's calling them to take note of gospel-centered disciples. I think Paul's saying, watch them. Watch how they pray. Listen to their prayers. What do, they, what do they pray about? What kind of books do they read? What are some of the spiritual disciplines that they do that has changed them? Take note of that and become like them. Now, what does a gospel-centered disciple look at? It's what we've already seen in chapter 3 so far. Paul says they're those who worship by the Spirit of God, those who glory in Christ Jesus. It's those who rest in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those who say it's about Jesus' works and not my works. It's those who say, I've gained Christ and I've been found in Him, not having a righteousness from the law, 
but from him. It's knowing him. It's counting all things as rubbish and as a loss because you know Jesus. It's sharing in his sufferings. It's becoming like him. It's what we saw last week, passionately pursuing Jesus with determination, without being distracted. That's what a gospel-centered disciple looks like. And Paul says, look at those in your life and imitate them. In a nutshell, a gospel-centered disciple rehearses the gospel daily. They preach the gospel to themselves and they believe that it's true and they live lives shaped by the gospel. They live lives synced up with the gospel. Let's make two observations here about this. First, notice that Paul calls on some believers to do the work of keeping their eyes on these gospel-centered disciples. What this means is that we can never sit back and say, I don't have anybody in my life to disciple me. I don't have anybody that I can follow. I don't have anybody that I can imitate. I don't have anybody that I, look, I can look at. Paul says, you keep your eyes on them. So we can't sit back and make excuses and say, no one's ever come alongside me. No, Paul says, you've got to do the work, maybe the hard work, of identifying people and keeping your eyes on them. The burden lies with you to do that. So look around at the church at large. A church universal. There are pastors, there are authors, there are theologians that you can glean from. You can listen to their sermons. You can download their podcasts. You can read their books. You can turn on the radio. You can turn on the TV. Some of the people on TV, there's a few you can maybe look at and observe. Not many, unfortunately. But Paul's saying, look around. You can look around in Christianity at large, and there are people that you can pattern your life after. You can glean from them. But you can also look around here. There are people here at Grace who are spiritually mature, who are gospel-centered disciples. You can ask them, how do you study Scripture? What study Bible do you use? Do you use any commentaries? What books have you read that have helped you and impacted your life? You can listen to how they pray when they pray. You can do that. The burden is on you to do that. You can take a communication card here. And if you want to, you can just fill out the front. And on the back, you can just write, disciple me. And you can turn it into the box back there. And then the staff will do our best to link you up with someone. If you want to be discipled, you want to keep your eyes on someone. And you say, There's, I don't know of anybody. Fill this out, write, disciple me on the back. And we'll get in touch with you and we'll do our best to link you up with someone else. That's one way that you can keep your eyes. The second observation here is that this verse brings a challenge to the mature disciple to keep living a gospel-centered life that can be copied. We have to ask ourselves here, can, can I tell people, look at me and copy me, imitate me, imitate my way of life? Can you say, hey, I'm not perfect, only Jesus is, but follow me as I follow Jesus? If you're in that category... Take out a communication card, fill out the front, and then on the right, on the back right, I can disciple people. And we will link you up with some of the people that wrote, Disciple Me. This passage is a call to behold and become a gospel-centered disciple who longs to behold and become like Jesus. Now look at verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears... 
walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Notice the word for here. Paul's given the, he's giving the reason why they should look to gospel-centered disciples and imitate them. He says, for, for many of whom I've often told you now, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. He says, this is the reason why you've got to keep your eyes on these godly leaders. Because there are many people out there who are enemies of the cross and they will distract you from following Jesus. Essentially, Paul's saying there are are two value systems in the world that are competing for your attention, for my attention. One is the gospel and those who follow it and the other is this world. And those who are in opposition to the gospel are enemies of the cross, Paul says. And he's warning them, be on your guard against these enemies. Notice here how Paul uses the word walk, which has the idea, the Greek word has the idea of of obedience and and walking and living a gospel-centered life. He says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Then he says, and he gives the reason why, for many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You will either follow gospel-centered disciples who are following Jesus, or you will follow the enemies of the cross in your life. Where do you take your cues from? You'll either take it from gospel-centered disciples, spiritually mature in your life, or you'll take it through the people that you see on TV, on Facebook, the Internet, at your workplace. You'll follow either an enemy of the cross with your life, or you'll follow a gospel-centered disciple. Well, who are these enemies of the cross? The commentators go, go hog wild here trying to figure out who are the enemies of the cross. I think... They are just the people that the Philippian church knew in their day-to-day lives that are trying to seek them out and distract them from following Jesus Christ. They were their neighbors. They were the co-workers. They were the family members who have not bowed their knees to Jesus as Lord. Now, Paul gives a reason here, he, 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 or he, he describes them in four ways. He says they're enemies of the cross, which we know according to Romans 5.10 that you are an enemy of the cross until you are born again. That God, in his great love, even while we were enemies, Paul says, sent his son into the world. So we are born enemies. So these enemies of the cross have never trusted in Jesus. But look at how he describes them. He says, their end is destruction. Their eternity is one of destruction. Not to be uh, experiencing eternal joy with the triune God in eternity forever, but it will be one of everlasting punishment. Now, let me stress here. When Paul says their end is destruction, he doesn't mean that eventually they're going to be obliterated and be no more. He doesn't mean that the first day in hell they burn up and they're consumed and they are no more. Now, Paul's not talking about annihilation. He's saying, you, these enemies of the cross will spend eternity in hell. It will be destruction, but they will not be consumed. They will be in a body forever experiencing the pains and the torments of hell. But it's destruction. But they're not going to be blown up to, to smithereens and never be, and be no more. But here's what I love about Paul. And here's what is so convicting to my life as I read this passage Paul is warning the Philippians. He's saying, watch out for the enemies of the cross. And he says, I'm warning you now, as I've warned you before, with tears. Paul believed the gospel message. And it grieved him when he spoke of the eternal destruction of those who would never know Jesus. It's so challenging to me. 
Charles Spurgeon said this about the, the tears that should accompany every Christian, every disciple for the lost and dying of this world. Spurgeon said, we are all, all of us ambassadors for Christ. And we are told that as ambassadors, we are to beseech men as though God besought them by us. How I do love to see a tearful preacher. How I love to see the man who can weep over sinners, whose soul yearns over the ungodly, as if he would by any means and by all means bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I cannot understand a man who stands up and delivers a discourse in a cold and indifferent manner, as if he cared not for the souls of his hearers. I think the true gospel minister will have a real yearning over souls, something like Rachel when she cried, give me children or else I die. So he will cry out to God that he may have his elect born and brought home to him. And methinks every true Christian should be exceedingly earnest in prayer concerning the souls of the ungodly. And when they are so, how abundantly God blesses them and how the church prospers. But, beloved, souls may be damned, yet how few of you care about them. Sinners may sink into the gulf of perdition, yet how few tears are shed over them. The whole world may be swept away by a torrent down the precipice of woe, yet how few really cry to God on its behalf. How few men say, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I may weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. We do not lament before God the loss of men's souls as it well becomes Christians to do. And he also said in another place, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. I think that's the heart of Paul here. He says, I've warned you, Philippians. There are enemies of the cross out there that are trying to distract you. But Paul says, but when I warned you, I warned you with tears because there are lost people dying. And I'm warning you because they're going to spend eternity in hell, in destruction, but also tears that you would get distracted and lose sight of your calling now to reach them. So he pleads with the Philippians with tears not to be distracted by the enemies of the cross, but to pray for them, I think, and then also to imitate gospel-centered disciples. The second way he describes them, he says their God is their belly. This does not mean that they do P90X and insanity and whatever else you see, infomercial you see on TV. It doesn't mean that they have six-pack abs and, oh, my God's my belly, I worship, you know, my six-pack. It's not what he's saying. He's talking about their appetites, the, the desires that they have, these sensual desires. They, they live for pleasure, pleasure not rooted in Jesus Christ. So their God is their stomach. They worship their appetite. Whatever they want in this world to bring them pleasure, they worship. It's their God. They live for their appetite, for sexual pleasures. They live for this world. They've lost sight of the fact that God made them to glorify himself and to enjoy him forever. And they're taking delight and pleasure in earthly things. 
Thirdly, he says they glory in their shame. They find their joy in the shameful deeds that they partake in. The parties, the sensual living become what they glory in. Monday morning becomes their, their time to tell their stories. What'd you do this weekend? Oh man, we had a blast. We did this. And they talk. They find glory in that. Instead of what Paul said in chapter three, we glory in Jesus Christ. We glory in his perfect works for us. And we don't glory like the world does in the fun that we had at that party over the weekend. Fourthly, Paul says that their minds are set on earthly things. They are not focused on the cross. They're not gospel-centered. This world and all of its pleasures has lured them away, and that's what they focus on. In fact, the word here for mind is that word that we've seen a few times in Philippians. It means to think a given way and to act upon it. These people have their minds. They think about the worldly pleasures, and they act on it question for us is where are these enemies of the cross for us today i think it's just like the church at philippi it's those who aren't christians they're people in your life it's your family members your co-workers your neighbors it's your close friends it's all of those people in your life that have not trusted in jesus christ they will try to distract you from living a gospel-centered life you know what it's like someone at work offends you You want to harbor anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. And what does the unbeliever say? Yeah, you need to be angry at them. They wronged you. And yet the gospel calls you to forgive them. But the enemy of the cross comes along to distract you saying, don't offer forgiveness, harbor bitterness, ignore them, give them the cold shoulder. That's just one example of how the enemies of the cross will come into our life to distract us from following Jesus. We're called to behold and become gospel-centered disciples who long to behold Jesus Christ and become like him one day. I think John Bunyan probably dealt with enemies of the cross in his life as well. You may know him as, as the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He struggled for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. He, he was put in prison for 12 years, and his crime was preaching the gospel. Imagine that. Here's the this, here's this, this sad thing about Bunyan, but he's such a hero of mine because of his, his steel backbone that he had. He didn't waver. He had a blind daughter. And I'm sure enemies of the cross came to him and said, John, if you'll just tell the authorities you won't preach the gospel anymore, they'll let you out of prison and you can take care of your wife and your kids and your blind daughter. This is what he said about his predicament. I found myself a man encompassed with infirmities. The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place in the prison as pulling the flesh from the bones. This is not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies or his family, but also because I would have often brought to mind the many hardships, miseries, and needs that my poor family were likely to meet with should I be taken from them. This is especially true of my poor blind child who lay nearer to my heart than all the others. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship my poor blind one might undergo would break my heart to pieces. Poor child, I thought, what sorrow are you like to have for your portion in this world? You must be beaten, must beg, suffer hunger, cold, nakedness, and a thousand calamities, though I cannot now endure that the wind shall blow upon you. But yet recalling myself, I thought, I must entrust you all with God, though it goes to the quick to leave you. Oh, I saw in this condition I was as a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet I thought, I must do it. I must do it. 
Bunyan was committed to the gospel. And it cost him his family and being away from them. And I'm sure enemies of the cross came and people that he knew. The guy who did his taxes, who wasn't a believer maybe, came to him and said, John, come on. Just tell him you won't preach the gospel anymore. You've got a blind daughter for crying out loud. You've got a wife and kids. Just renounce preaching the gospel and they'll set you free. That's what the enemy of the cross does to come and distract us from wanting to see Jesus and be like him. We are called to behold and become a gospel-centered disciple who longs to behold and become like Jesus. So the practical challenge for you and for me is to look to people like Spurgeon and Calvin and Bunyan and others. Read Christian biographies. See how these saints lived and how they endured and imitate them. Keep your eyes on them. Follow them. And you'll become a gospel-centered disciple. And in time, people will look at you and you'll be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And this process here of beholding and becoming a gospel-centered disciple is part of God's transformation plan for your life. God wants to change you. And it's a slow process, I know that, but God wants to change you. And he will change you on that final day when you behold Jesus and become like him. But God has started a transformation process in your life now. And part of that process where you become like Jesus now, as you await the day when you will finally be like him, part of that process is that you identify godly people in your life and you imitate them. And you can do that through books and other means. And on that day, it'll culminate on that final day. And that's what Paul says in verse 20 and 21. Look there. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Notice the word but here. Paul is contrasting the life of the enemy of the cross with what believers have, their citizenship. Our citizenship is rooted in heaven. Now, the Philippians were familiar with this word that Paul used because they were a, a Roman colony. They prided themselves on being Rome, Roman. They were away from Rome, but they were a Roman colony, and they prided themselves on being Roman. And Paul says, you know what that's like, but your real citizenship is in heaven. It's with Jesus. So live like that now. Represent heaven now upon the earth. Become gospel-centered. Live opposite the enemies of the cross. And then Paul gives the reason why in verse 20. For from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Why should we imitate gospel-centered disciples and not get distracted by the enemies of the cross? Why should we not live for the sensual pleasures of the body like the enemies of the cross? Because Jesus is coming again one day and he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. One day we will behold Jesus and we will become like him and that's the hope of the gospel. Let me ask you today, do you long for him? Do you yearn for him? Do you long to see him and to experience the transformation where you have, you'll receive a glorious body? Do you long for that day? And not because you don't like your nose or you think your belly's too big or you don't like your elbows or your earlobes. I'm not talking about that. Some of us are like, I can't wait to see Jesus because I'm going to get like new earlobes or whatever. Okay? I think we're going to look just like we look. We'll just be glorified. You'll have glorified earlobes. 
okay? If that's your thing, whatever it is. We all have our things, right? But we'll be like him. We'll have a glorified body. Several truths emerge from this verse. One, the body is meant for eternity. Many Christians live today like the body is a bad thing. Oh, if I could just get rid of my body, then I would be free to live like Jesus. I just want to get rid of this body. It's the problem. No, the body's not the problem. Sin is the problem. Yes, sin came into the world. The body was perfect when God created Adam and Eve. Two parts, material and immaterial. A physical body and a spirit. That, a spirit. That's, our, that's our makeup here. Okay? And some people want to get rid of their body. But God made you to be a body and a spirit together. Some people think, if I just get rid of my body, but you're going to have a body forever. Now, if you die today and go be with Jesus, you're going to be separated from your body. So you're not going to be in completion. You're not going to be perfect yet. You're waiting the day when God will resurrect your body. Hey, I'll go today and see Jesus. To live is Christ. To die is gain. It's gain for me to leave all of you today. It's gain for me to leave my family. But if I die today and go see Jesus, I'm still waiting on my body to be resurrected. I'm still waiting for my spirit, which will be with Jesus, to come back and be reunited with my body. The body is meant for eternity, and we will walk the new earth in bodies with new spleens. And Gary Barron got his spleen removed yesterday. He's getting his spleen back, and it's going to be glorified, and it's going to be perfect. And we're going to have perfect elbows and earlobes and kneecaps and toes, big toes. They're all going to be perfect. They're all going to be glorified. And we're going to walk the new earth in our glorified bodies. That's what Paul's saying. He's going to transform our lowly body. It's lowly now because it's been affected by sin. But there's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to transform it and make it glorious. We're going to be like him. So that's the point of this passage. It's not that we're all going to have, you know, Hollywood looks, perfect hair, six-pack abs. I don't know. Maybe you'll get six-pack abs in heaven. I've got no verse for it, okay? (laughs) If I did, everyone would be like, that's my life verse today, right? I don't know if you've got curly hair and you've fought it and hated it your whole life and you've straightened it out and straightened it out. I don't know if you're going to get straight hair in heaven. It may be curly. But the point of the passage is not how we look outwardly, By our standards, it's how we look. We'll become like Jesus. We'll have a glorified body. We'll be like him forever. That's the point of the passage. And we'll never sin again. He's going to transform this lowly body and make it like him. The second truth, I think, is that the body is going to be changed by his power. Paul talked about that power in Philippians 3.10. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. But Jesus' power isn't just to, to raise bodies dead bodies. It's powerful to do that and it's powerful to make every knee submit to him. That's what he says here. He will subject all things to himself. Every right will, every wrong will be righted. Every knee will bow. Every enemy will be brought low in humility before him. In his power, he is going to transform our bodies and subject all things to himself. All peoples, all nations, All of creation will be subject to Jesus and his power. And that power that causes all people to bow before him is the power that's going to change our bodies. That's why we look forward to the resurrection. John Walvard said this, Eager expectation of the return of the Lord and of the fulfillment of promises for our glorification is the hallmark of Christians 
walking in fellowship with their Lord. That eager expectation of Jesus returning is going to fulfill these promises, this promise of our glorification. He says that's the hallmark of Christians walking in fellowship with their Lord and, and with each other. It's that we long for that day. Gospel-centered disciples are eager for Jesus to return. They can't wait to get new glorified bodies. And they do this in community with others. See, we are called to behold and become a gospel-centered disciple who longs to behold and become like Jesus. So let me ask you today, do you want to become like Jesus? For sure on that final day. But what about now? Do you want to be conformed to his image? Do you want to take discipleship seriously? Then look around. There are plenty of gospel-centered disciples here. Behold them and become like them. Follow them, imitate them, and begin developing a longing to behold and become like Jesus on that final day. And then as you become a gospel-centered disciple, you're called to call others to say, follow me as I follow Jesus. Some of you need to behold and become. You need to be discipled. Let us know. Be active. It's time to get serious. Some of you come in and you leave. You come in and you leave. You've got no relationships here. You're not being discipled by anybody. You don't know anyone. You just come and go, come and go. It's time to get serious. Do you want to be discipled? Do you want godly, gospel-centered people in your life who are saying, follow me as I follow Christ? Today is the day to get serious. All you got to do is fill out this card and say, disciple me. And in parentheses, if you want to tickle me later in the week, in parentheses, say, I'm ready to get serious. You can put that in parentheses, and I'll even be even more happy than just if you write, disciple me. It's time to get serious. If you know, hey, I'm a new Christian, I'm a baby Christian, I need to grow, it's time for you to get serious. It's time for you to have people in your life that you can look to and say, I want to follow them as they follow Jesus. And it's time for us mature believers, those who are gospel-centered, it's time for us to say, I'm going to sacrifice some time. I want to sacrifice one hour a week to meet with someone at Starbucks and, and share with them my life. It's time for us mature disciples to take discipleship seriously. Say, you know what? I'm not discipling anyone. Just tickle me pink and say, I will disciple people. And then parentheses put in there, it's time for me to get serious. It's time for all of us to get serious. This is what we're to be about, making disciple, making disciples. So here's our homework for this week. I want you to ask somebody. Just go up to them and say, what's your favorite verse? Tell me what that means to you. What's a good book that you've read? What's a good book that you read by some famous author that really helped you follow Jesus? Tell me about that. Tell me how you pray. Tell me what apps you use on your phone that help you follow Jesus Christ. It's, it's this week, find someone and just ask them. Say, I'm only doing what Pastor Benji said. He told me to ask you your favorite verse and what it means to you. That's how we begin to follow people. It's how we begin to imitate them. They say, this is what I do. This is, this is what my quiet time looks like in the morning. I, this is what I do, or in the evening, or whatever it is you do. it. This is how I spend my lunch. I could go to the break room and, and listen to those jokes that are inappropriate, but you know what I do? I go to my car, and I read my Bible. It's time for us to start asking each other questions and seeing people and saying, I want to imitate that, because that person's following Jesus. Let's become a church that does that. Let's become a church that beholds becomes gospel-centered disciples, and then we long to behold and become like Jesus. We can only do it by his grace. And I think he'll help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, what a challenge to me on so many levels, God. 
Would you make us a church that sheds tears over the lost, those that don't know Jesus, those that have not submitted to his lordship, those that do not know him as a treasure, those who do not find their pleasure in him. God, would you give us tears to weep over them? Make us a church, God, that shares the gospel with our family and friends and co-workers and our neighbors. God, would you make us a church that's so excited about Jesus and what he's done for us that we have to tell people everywhere we go to give us tears, break our hearts for them, God. And then would you break our hearts, God, to reach out to those who are behind us in the race a little bit, those who aren't as spiritually mature, would you help those of us who are are mature to, to look back and say, follow me as I follow Christ. And those who are new Christians and baby Christians who are growing and in the process, would you let them see mature disciples and pattern their life after them as they follow Jesus. And we pray that you would do it by your grace and that you would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.